I read in my devotions this morning out of 1 Thessalonians, it says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And what a great song and a great thought. And uh, how, how many would be all right if you came back tonight? Yeah, I would be. I'll tell you right now. I know a lot of young people think, wait a second, I want to live a little bit. Man, I, I want to grow up some. I remember thinking that when I was a teenager, but you know the truth is if God came tonight, whatever he's got for us would be better than what we got right now, I guarantee you. So I'm thankful for that. Well, how many would rather be here tonight than in the hospital with both legs in traction? Okay, all right, very good. I'm glad you're, glad you're here. You know, last night your pastor was talking about I mean, just so so gracious and kind. I just want you to know, today I went to Freddy's and I got you a gift card. So, and it's a good gift card because you've got like 27 children. So I want you to take all of your family and go to Freddy's, all right? And I won't even be there to complain about it or anything like that, all right? You know. All right, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, please. Mark chapter 10. And let's have a good time tonight. Let's learn something from God's Word. I hope you love the Bible, and I hope that your heart has been stirred for the things of God. And again, uh, we want to have a renewal of interest in spiritual things, and I believe that the Lord is doing that and has done that. And it's like a fire. You just got to keep putting logs on it, keep stoking the fire all throughout your Christian life. And I trust that this will just be one log on the fire for you in your spiritual journey. So let's stand together. Mark chapter 10, and we'll begin reading in verse 32, and we'll read down through verse 45. It says, And they were in the way, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. I want to pause right there. Could you just imagine, it says that Jesus was before them, so, so he's walking ahead, and they're just watching him. I bet they were filled with amazement. I mean, it, it, there were things said like this, ne never a man spake like this man. I mean, it, this, they, they recognized all the time, this guy isn't like us. And they were amazed. But I like this, and as they followed, they were afraid. You know, Peter said that once, depart from me, I'm a sinful, I mean, like, you know, there's that amazement, and then like, whoa, wait a second, I mean, like, I can just see them experiencing that all of the time. It says, and he took again the twelve, and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. So here's Jesus, he's, he's bearing his soul to them, saying, behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered into the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him. And shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise. Now, there's a paragraph break here, but it's, it's almost as if everything that he just said goes right over their head. And he says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Now that's a loaded question. I mean, fellas, you ever had your wife say that? Now promise me. You're going to do this. I got, I'm going to ask you something. Promise me you'll do it. How many of you are veteran enough to say, not till you tell me what you're asking, right? And that's what they're saying. Promise me you'll do what we're going to ask you. And he said unto them, what, what would you that I should do for you? And they said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit one on the right hand and the other on the left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, we can. How many get the idea that G what Jesus was talking about and what they are talking about, two different things? 
says, And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. I want to preach to you tonight. The title of my message is From Good to Great. And I want to talk about what greatness truly is according to our Lord. Let's go ahead in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help me to preach tonight and communicate truth. I pray that you would empower me and use me. I thank you for this great congregation that has come again one more time with great anticipation and energy. And I pray that you would give supernatural strength to help us in the weariness of our, our longer week and work day. And I just pray that you would meet with us as you have many times already in this meeting. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for standing so long. You may be seated. I appreciate that. Um, I noticed that it's on the bookshelf in your pastor's office. Uh, Jim Collins in 2001 wrote a book with that title, From Good to Great. It's called Good to Great. I would imagine that uh, some of the preachers in the room have read that book. Uh, I'm going to assume some business people have read that book. It's, it's, it was a best-selling book, and it's, it's, a, it's a management book. And what it did is it showcased 11 companies uh, that basically uh, had transformed from a good company into a great company. Some of the companies on the list were Walgreens, uh, Gillette, uh, Pitney Bowes. There were 11 companies like that, and he chronicled how they had gone from being a good company, but they had transitioned into a great company. He gives some amazing principles on it. Even if you're a pastor, just the management things that he talks about, he's kind of famous for this. It's something that I've used often in, in leading our church. He said, you know, you've got to get the wrong people off the bus, the right people on the bus, and the right people in the right seats on the bus. And, and it's some, some good practical advice. But the first thing that he talked about was he talked about you, you need to have good leadership. Okay, And so we, we've often taught, whether you heard Lee Robertson say it or John Maxwell say it, the, the statement is this, you know, everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, now again, I, I don't want to take umbrage with some greater men than me, but I don't know if everything rises and falls on leadership. I mean, it requires two to tango. You've got to have followship and leadership. Uh, but I do know this, a significant amount of stuff rises and falls on leadership. And by the way, I've got a little lengthier open illustration. Stay with me. This isn't a management business class. I am going somewhere with this. And so he said, you've got to have uh, what he called a level. If you want to go from good to great, you've got to have a level five leader. Now, some of you are thinking, man, our church will never be great. No, 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 no. I'm, 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 I'm kidding. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So it will surprise you, though, how he defines a level five leader. I'm not going to go through all levels of leadership, but let's talk about what a level four leader is. Here's a level four leader. It's an effective leader who catalyzes commitment to and, and vigorous pursuit of a clear and compelling vision, stimulating higher performance standards. Now, again, some of you are thinking, wait a second, this isn't business class, but, but hold on. Here's what he's saying about 11-4 leader. It's somebody who's a visionary. 
Okay, that's level four now. This is somebody who's a visionary. I mean, they can see it before it happens. They've got a five-year plan, 10-year plan, 25-year plan. They are a visionary. You know, I've had people come to my church and ask me that. What is your vision for the church? I'll be honest with you. I do not have a five-year, 10-year, 25 plan for our church. I, I would say what I, my vision for the church is I want to be a healthy church. I want to be a biblical church. If we can take care of that, all of that other stuff will take care of itself. But again, these leaders, are, these are driven guys that can see it before it's happened. And, and there's a place for that, but that's a level four leader. These are people that have a strong, what he said in that uh, textbook definition, these are people who have a strong personality. I mean, come on, you know people like that. When they walk in the room, everybody else stands up a little straighter. I mean, everybody's just kind of looking at them. I mean, they, they just have this charismatic aura about them, and they, they just are, I mean, they're going to be the smartest person at the table. They're going to be the one that has the, something to say all of the time, these strong leaders. And these, these are people who are determined. In, in, in essence, what he says, a level four leader is somebody who is a power leader. But according to the book, he said you got to have a level five leader. Now, what I just described is what everybody thinks about when they think of a leader. But he said that's not it. Let me read to you what he said in the book. He said, we were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders, please don't miss this, this is what he said, are a paradoxal blend of personal humility and professional will. There's a difference. I think what our world says is a great leader is what he described as a power four leader, or level four leader. But he said, no, 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 you've got to have a paradoxal blend of personal humility and professional will. You say, well, I'm not tracking you with your illustration. Here it is. Jim Collins devoted 15,000 hours of research, studied 6,000 articles, generated 2,000 pages of interview transcripts of CEOs, He created 384 million bytes of computer data to come up with a conclusion that Jesus gave in seven Bible verses about 2,000 years ago. So we come back to our text. When we see in verse 32 through 34, it's the third announcement of Jesus' ultimate end of his ministry. This is the third time. He's done this two other times where he said to his disciples, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be put in the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to die. But I'll rise again. But this third time, he doesn't just tell them what will happen. He adds some details that he hasn't added to this point. Now he's going to tell them where it's going to happen. He says, this is going to happen in Jerusalem. And he tells them who is going to do it. He talks about the Pharisees, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day. And and he points this out. Now think about it. Here is Jesus and he's bearing his soul to his closest friends. Have you ever had this experience I mean, someone that really was your friend, really cared about you, and you're telling them something significant, something heartfelt, and they, they, they hear what you say, and then they might do this, oh yeah, well that happened to me once, and it was way worse than what's happened to you. <laughs> you ever had a friend that did that? And I mean, I mean, again, they're your friend, and you love them, but it's kind of like, hey, wait a second here, I'm sharing something with you. I'm like, like Jesus is bearing his, his soul, like, like listen, this, I'm going to be spit upon, I'm going to be abused, and whipped, and beaten, and he's, he's telling them his concerns as a man to, to them, and it's almost as if it just, it just blows right over them and they almost don't even care. You see, they, they, their mindset was they had, they had cro- crowns on their mind. They weren't thinking about crosses. Right. Right. And it just wasn't in their, in their wheelhouse, you know. And so, so then they come in verse 35, and James and John come up to Jesus and promise us you'll do this for us. And he says, what is that? 
We want to sit on, in a position of greatness when you come back in glory, as our brother sang about tonight. When you, when you establish your kingdom, we want to make sure that we are in a prominent seat of power and position. That's what we want. Now, I know, we know immediately that, like, hey, what, was this, what were these guys' problems? But let's, let's stop for just a moment and give them some credit. Can we do that? Let's give them some credit. Because what I'm saying tonight about this as by way of introduction is, listen, there is nothing wrong with aspiring to greatness. There's nothing wrong with that. Let, let me explain what I mean. Um, you, you know, there's some educators in this room. Teachers. I, I, I teach a class at our Christian school, and, 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 and I uh, lead a church ministry that has educators in it. We've got public school teachers, we've got Christian school teachers in our ministry, and uh, we've got some professors in college. And so, so you understand that teachers that, that teach and truly care about their class and care about academics, they will tell you, they will tell you by personal experience that they have students in their classes, and they've had students in their classes over the years, that have a mental acuity that could excel in the classroom. They could be great students, but they don't apply themselves to greatness. Again, I don't know that I could ever have been a great student. I got straight A's once, and that was in the first grade. I mean, that was it. Okay? Uh, so, so I don't know what my mental acuity is in the classroom, but I, I do know this, that I didn't always aspire to greatness academically. Like, why, Miss Dixie, please tell me why teachers do this. Why do they say, please write a three to five page paper? Because if you said that to me when I was in high school, you're getting three. You're not getting five, you're getting three. And I'd probably stop mid-sentence at the end of that third page. You see, there are a lot of students that could be something great academically, but they don't aspire to greatness. It was like coach basketball. I've coached baseball. I, I, I really enjoy sports. And, and if you are a coach and you've been involved in athletics of any form, you will know that it can be very frustrating because you as a coach can look at, a, at, at, a, at a, a player on your team and you can look at them and see the athletic ability that they have and how they could be so much more on the court or on the field and yet they don't really care. They don't really care to put in the extra practice. They don't care to uh, change what they're doing in their form and therefore they are content to just remain average. I'm a pastor. I'm just telling you. I see teenagers all the time that have gobs of talent, gobs of potential. They could do something great for Jesus Christ, but they are content to remain average in their spirituality. And it's not just a teenager thing. I see their parents and their grandparents that are content to just be where they are spiritually and make no effort to excel to greatness. And so I come full circle around. And what I'm saying is let's not be too hard on the disciples. I mean, at first we want to be disgusted. How could you ask Jesus that question? How could you be so arrogant and presumptuous to ask that question? But yet, while we don't know everything about their heart, let's at least give them some credit that at least they desired to be something more in their spiritual life. They said, we want to be great for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's a great question and application to make in a revival meeting in a church like this hey would it not burn in somebody's breast tonight to say you know what I'm not content to just stay where I'm at spiritually I'd like to be great in my spiritual life I'm not talking about walking around like yeah I'm a prayer warrior you look how spiritual I am I'm not talking about that I'm just saying something burning within me that says I want to be more for Jesus Christ than I am I'm not content to stay and just be average I want to be great in my Christian life 
Because I read Revelation chapter 3 and we can find out real quick what Jesus thinks about mediocre Christians. He doesn't really care for it all that much. So again, while I would agree that they went about it the wrong way and, and, and they were really careless in how they did it, I want you to understand the problem in this text, and there is a problem in the text. The problem in this text is not that they wanted to be great. That's not the problem. The problem is how we define what greatness is and why we want to be great. Again, these men were misguided in how they were defining what great. They thought being great was having a title. They thought being great was being important. They thought being great was being in a powerful position. They thought being great was being noticed by other people. So their definition of greatness was totally skewed. And their motive, I think we, while we can't really see it and it's not ours to judge, it does seem to indicate that their motive was for their own self and their own glory and not the glory of Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you tonight, if there is a group of people in this church that would say to themselves I'm tired of just staying I don't want to dwell where I'm at I want to move to higher ground I want to be greater than I am right now in my walk with God that's not a bad thing provided we define greatness in the proper way and we have a proper motive behind it so we may not be as open and honest about it as the disciples were but we often in our life do not show that we do not grasp what it means To be a disciple of a crucified Savior who gave his life a ransom for many. And so I want to come to our text tonight because Jesus outlines two elements of greatness. He defines it for us. And I want you to see it tonight. Number one, greatness is willing to suffer. When you come to this text, they say, can we sit on your right hand and your, your left hand? And Jesus says, well, let me answer that by asking a question. Can you drink the cup that I drink of? Can you be baptized with the baptism I've been baptized with? And they say we can. And again, I pointed this out when we were reading the passage together. We get the idea real quick that they're not talking about the same things. Um, I'm going to tell you something. I know you don't know me real well, but I'm going to tell you something about me. I mean, some of you, you might lose respect for me. Some of you, you might not. I, I don't know. But I hope I don't have to turn in my man card. But I like musicals. I do. I, I, I like them. Um, I know some guys are like, how could you? But I, 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 I like them. Our Christian school does a musical every year, and it's really cool. I mean, for a school our size, we're not a giant school, but, but I mean, it's amazing the talent that we have and what the kids are able to put together. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive. And uh, a couple of years back, our drama teacher, which is also a man, uh, came to me, big burly guy, but he's into it too. And he came to me and he said, Pastor, I just want to get your approval on the musical that we're going to do next year. And he said, it, would it be okay if we did Fiddler on the Roof? Now, Fiddler on the Roof is my favorite musical of all. I love Fiddler on the Roof very much. And I looked at him and I said, you can do Fiddler on the Roof provided one stipulation. You can do it as long as I can participate in it this year. I want to be a part of it. (laughs) And he thought for a moment. He looked at me and he said, Pastor, I've got the perfect, perfect role for you. I said, okay, what's that? He said, you can be the rabbi. So I was the rabbi in our school's production of Fill and Earth. You should have seen this Baptist preacher's dance moves, man. I'm telling you, I was, I was awesome. Broadway's been calling, but I said, I'm doing a good work. I cannot come down, you know. If you're familiar with the story, it's about an, uh, a, 
uh, 19th century family in Russia where a pogrom is, is going to take place and the Jewish people are expelled out of their village. And, and so it talks about the struggles of their life and what goes on. And the main character is a dairy farmer. And the local butcher wants to marry his oldest daughter. And so his wife says, go down and talk to the butcher. But the, the father, the dairy farmer, doesn't realize what the butcher is wanting to do. He's wanting to ask for the hand in marriage of his daughter. He thinks that the butcher wants to buy his milk cow. So he goes and he talks to them. And in the conversation, every reference that the, the, the main character makes is about a cow. But every reference that the butcher makes is about his daughter. So when one is speaking about a daughter, the other is hearing about a cow. And when one is speaking about a cow, the other is hearing about a daughter. And it becomes a very comical conversation. In our text here, they're talking about two different things. Very different things. You say, well, what are they talking about? Again, I, I don't know that I can be completely dogmatic, but I have some ideas and understandings about it. I believe when Jesus said, can you drink of the cup that I'm, I drink of, I believe Jesus was talking here about inward suffering. So where do you get that idea? Some of you that have been familiar with the Bible, you remember when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he, he's in agony, right? I mean, he, he is not in agony over the fact that he's going to be tortured and he's going to physically die. We believe that he was in agony because for the first time in all of eternity, he is going to become sin for humanity and he'll be separated from the fellowship of his father. And so we know that he is so intense in his emotions and so intense in his prayers that we even sing songs about how he would sweat drops of blood uh, as, he, as the capillaries burst in his head and, and, and he's just intense. And what does he pray? You, you know the prayer, right? He says, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. Well, what was he going through at that moment? He's going through intense inward suffering. Then he turns around and he asks them what seems to be an unrelated question, but it's a very much a related question. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? I believe what he's saying there is, are you willing and able to not only handle inward suffering, are you able to handle outward suffering? Because let's think, church, what is baptism? Whether it was John's baptism of repentance or whether it's our biblical baptism of today that is associated with salvation, what is it? It is an outward expression of something that is inwardly taken place, right? When your church celebrates a baptism of somebody, what they're doing is you go down into the water, Jesus died, or I mean, uh, the water crossed your body, Jesus died on a cross. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And so what we're doing is we're giving an outward symbol to all who are present that Jesus died on the cross for me, was buried and rose from the dead, and that's how I've been saved. And this is an outward testimony of what has already taken place inward in my life. But the disciples look at him and say, yeah, we can do that. Not a problem. Because they're thinking something different. I mean, think about what they're thinking about. I mean, they're thinking about a cup. They're not thinking about suffering. They're thinking about something totally different. They're thinking about celebration. Listen, I pastored in Long Beach, California. When I was in Long Beach, California, our church was incredibly multicultural. We had people from all, I mean, any Latino country you can think of, we probably had somebody from there. We had people from Africa. We had all kinds of Asian groups. We, I mean, you name it, we had, we, we even had a lady from, from Denmark that grew up with Corey Ten Boom that, li, that was a member of our church. I mean, just very, very multicultural. Here's what I learned in pastoring a very multicultural church. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care what your original language is. 
I don't care where you come from and where you live now. We all like to eat. <laughs> I, I mean, in, in just this trip here, it's, hey, we're going to eat here, and we're going to eat with these people, and we're going to eat here, and we're going to eat with those people, and we're going to get together, and we're going to watch a silly game, and we're going to eat while we're watching the game. Like, it's just, we get around. And so they hear, can you drink the cup? You got food? We're down with that. We can celebrate. We can get together. We can rejoice. Who doesn't want to have a good meal? Who doesn't want to celebrate? Yeah, we can handle that. I mean, think about when he says about the baptism. Think of what they understood about baptism. Baptism to them was just nothing more than a symbol of renewal. It's, it's like today. Think about it. When we have somebody get baptized at our church, I'm sure this happens here. Look, a lot of times they'll say, hey, look, I want to get baptized in two weeks. That way I can get my family to come. And listen, I don't care what they're, they can be absolutely non-religious. They can be from a, a, a completely different religious background. But they will come and watch somebody get baptized. They'll pack a pew and they'll go, oh, that's awesome. That was the mentality of the disciples as well. Oh, you want us to have, participate in celebration? We can do that. You want us to enjoy a symbol of renewal? We can do that. But Jesus looked at them and didn't he say this? He said, well, you indeed, you can. I want you to think about something for a moment. Who was he talking to? He was talking to James and John. What do you know about James and John? He, he looked at James and said, oh yeah, you'll be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. James was the first one to lose his head and be martyred for, for his faith. He would suffer outwardly, phys physically. He would suffer. He was talking to John. What do you know about John? John was banished and exiled on an island all by himself. Did you know that God did not create us to live in solidarity? Do you understand the anguish, the, the mental damage that it does when we, when we are isolating ourselves? Listen, you don't think that he was on an island all by himself, suffering inwardly with agony, agony and emotional uh, uh, difficulty? Oh yeah, Jesus knew exactly who he was talking to. And the point that he makes when he says, can you, be, can you drink of my cup and be baptized in my baptism? The great point that he's trying to make is this. Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, listen, this is my suffering that you're going to associate with. And he's saying this, that's not accidental. Because think about Jesus' suffering. Jesus was willing to suffer. Now listen, I don't want you to misunderstand me tonight. I don't like suffering. Like I don't get up in the morning. I'm very careful about praying for patience. Because the Bible says, tribulation worketh patience, and I want none of that. I'm not a sadist. I don't like suffering. I like the American comforts we have. One of my kids the other day said, Dad, why do you always say roll the window up in the car? Because when I was a kid, you rolled it up. These pampered brats just push your button. They don't even have to hold the button down. They just push it. So I'm not down on that. I like climate control. I like fan. I told you what I think of camping. I mean, you, you understand? I'm not, I'm not saying suffering, bring it on. I'm just simply saying this. If you are truly going to follow Christ and you want to be great in your relationship with Christ, you must be willing to suffer. 
Because I understand, nobody has suffered like Jesus suffered. Jesus literally became the curse for us. He became sin for us so that we might be made righteous in him. So there's no way we could could understand what he went through. His suffering was unlike anyone else. But the point is that the suffering of a Christian is a reality if you're truly going to follow Jesus Christ. I come to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I read about Paul and do you ever read that and think, I am the worst, I, I'm just a, I'm a bum of a Christian. Because he talks about beatings and imprisonments and death threats and shipwrecks and robberies and pain and hunger and all kinds of suffering. And I look at the suffering I've gone through and I'm so weak. But you know how God spoke to me about that? He said, listen, I don't expect you to suffer like Paul like so-and-so, but I do expect you to willingly embrace the sufferings that I expect you to suffer. So that's contrary to the message in Christianity today. Today it's all about success. It's all about comfort. It's all about blessing. Hashtag blessed. See, See, in our minds, suffering is a problem to be avoided. It's it's a problem that you have to solve. And I think it's because our mentality is we view things on the wrong side of the fence. I mean, think about it. I said earlier they had crowns on their mind. They didn't have crosses on their mind. Don't you think about the cross. If you're looking at it from the angle they were looking at it, you get a total different representation of that than when we look at it. We have a decoration of a cross here. When they looked at a cross... That represented defeat. Is that what you see when you look at that cross? No, that's a symbol of, of victory for you. I mean, we sing victory in Jesus, right? I mean, uh, we look, I mean, again, I'm not trying to be snarky or create any trouble, but aren't you thankful that there's no image of Christ on that cross? He's gone, right? He's not there. Why? He came off of the cross and he rose in victory. So, so when they looked at a Roman cross, they would have saw defeat, but they're looking at it from the wrong angle. We see it in victory. When they looked at a cross, they, it represented pain and suffering. Is that what it represents to you? I don't think so. We say by his stripes we were healed. We see healing and we see hope. I mean, this represented death to them. But to us, it represents the exact opposite. It represents life. Well, back to suffering. I think today's Christians see suffering from an earthly view, not a heavenly view. As I referenced Paul, beaten, shipwrecked, hungered, imprisoned, All of these things. And he was able to write this in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. He says, for our light affliction. He calls it light. Our light affliction. That list of things you read in 2 Corinthians 11, he calls light. He says, it's just for a moment. And he says, it worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But here's the key. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. If you want to be great, you've got to be willing to suffer a little bit. And look, I'm not trying to be mean, but some of our modern Christianity is so wimpy. So wimpy. I mean, people people leave churches because somebody sat in their seat. Somebody looked at him. I had a lady tell me once, I, I, I led her to Christ. I baptized her. She was growing in the Lord. Then she just disappeared. I, I, you know, it's one of those things, I, I don't know if this ever happened to you, Brother Harry. In the, in the 
I saw her in the grocery store. You could see she was hiding from me. She's like, I'm like chasing her, you know. She's like hiding on end caps, you know. Where you been? This is what this is literally what she told me, Pastor. Well, I, last time I was there, somebody looked at me funny. You know what I said? We got a lot of funny looking people. That's just how they look. They can't help it. It's mamby pamby. Jesus said, you want to be great? You have to be willing to suffer. Martin Luther King Jr. has a quote. I think it's great. He said this, to our most bitter opponents. And of course, you know about Martin Luther King Jr. He, he was a, you know, we're, we're going to peacefully protest. And boy, did he, in his, in his quest for, for social equality he, he, and racial equality, he suffered a lot, didn't he? And I think this is a great, great statement. He said, to our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Can we take that and imply that to our Christian life? You know, I'm going to match what life throws my way by my, my capacity to endure that for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a verse about that. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the second thought. So greatness is willing to suffer. Secondly, greatness is willing to serve. So he, he transitions after this statement about the cup and the baptism dealing with suffering, and he, and he gives them a lesson. He, 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 he just wants to sit down and talk to them. And, and I think it's because so far in this, in this passage, we've observed, uh, observed a lot of worldliness from the disciples. Now, some of you might be saying, wait, what worldliness, really? Listen, I grew up in a generation of, of preachers. I mean, they would rear back and preach, and I, I like it. I hope you don't mind. I raise my voice sometimes. But I, I've often said this to our church. Listen, if a man can't get excited about the Bible, I mean, what can he get excited about? I mean, we don't have a problem when coaches are yelling at refs and coaches are yelling. And I, I, I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to let some coach in a basketball court out-preach me. I'm not going to let some politician giving a speech out-preach me. I'm just not going to do it. So, I mean, I understand just because you raise your voice doesn't mean you're preaching. But, but I mean, it, it does help. I mean, because like Eutychus, some of you fall asleep. So, I mean, if a preacher raises, ah, it just wakes you up, you know what I mean? It's just kind of good. You know what I mean? It's just kind of helpful. So I grew up in a generation where, I mean, preachers, boy, they would, they would like preach. I mean, like stomping and screaming and carrying on. And I, again, again, I know that you can stomp and scream and it's not really preaching. But, but what I heard a lot of was this. Preaching against worldliness. And you'd go to a youth conference, and man, that, that preacher, it, I'm not an advocate of this, but he'd come to the pulpit angry, I mean, ready to rip somebody's face off, and he was going to preach on worldliness. And he was going to tell you how bad the movie theater was, and how bad, you know, uh, you, you know how you dress is this way, and your, your rock and roll music, and boy, he's going, I mean, he, he's going to rip on your fashion, and he's, I mean, and he's going to preach against worldliness. And it was always movies, music, and fashion. Come on, some of you know what I'm talking about. Now listen, I'm not necessarily against that. I think there's a place for that. But, but, but you, you do understand, this church is mature enough and established enough to understand that that's, there's more to worldliness than that. And, and a lot of what happened is the preachers were attacking all of those things, but they were never dealing with the mindsets that, that were contributing to these things, the mindsets that were really, really worldly that have crept through the bricks of the church and have, have been given a free pass. 
So I want you to notice in this text, there's a lot of worldliness that's going on, but Jesus doesn't say anything about what they're wearing. He says nothing about what they're listening to or what they're watching. None of it. Notice, I want you to see some of the worldliness in the text. He talks about their ambition. It addresses or exposes their ambition. Did you notice that these guys made sure that they were in the front of the line? James and John, hey, Jesus, psst, come here, come here. Hey, when this whole kingdom thing goes down, will you make sure that we can sit in the prominent spots? And I want to point something out to you. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Why? Because they didn't think of it first. I mean, they're, they're like my kids. Do your kids do this? I'm sitting by dad. Shotgun. I want that piece. You, you understand? There's a lot of ambition. Like, I've got to get mine. I've got to get my spot, my stuff, my space. I, I've got to get what's mine. That's a worldly mentality. Listen to me, church. It may be dog eat dog out there, but it should not be dog eat dog in here. Okay? So our own selfish ambition can really get us, that's, that's worldly. Do you understand you can be in a church wearing the proper attire with a clean playlist and be just as worldly because you're saying, well, the pastor called on him to pray. He never calls on me to pray. Okay, that's selfish ambition. That's worldliness. All right? Hey, here's another worldly mentality I see here. Overconfidence. Can you, can you drink of the cup? Can you be baptized with baptism? We can. I mean, come on. They struggled with overconfidence. I've told you my favorite character is Peter. I mean, can you see Peter? Jesus said, listen, when the Son of Man is arrested, you guys are going to all scatter. I mean, immediately you're going to scatter. And what does Peter do? I woke him up. I'm sorry, man. He was getting some good sleep, and I messed him up. Look, Peter, Peter stands up, though, doesn't he? And he? I mean, just Peter, overconfident. And he goes, I got something to say. He said, I'm not, look, I, I have no, no doubt that these guys are going to deny you. I mean, Thomas is doubting everything you ever say. Matthew, all he cares about is money. James and John are always after the best seats in the house. But let me tell you something, Jesus. Old Pete, never going to deny you. And this is in the Greek. You can study it. Jesus said, shut up and sit down. Before the day is over, you'll deny me three times. You'll be the worst of all. Nah, nah, not going to happen. And it did happen. See, the Bible says put no confidence, no confidence in your flesh. And these guys were completely overconfident. Notice this, too. I see the worldliness of competitiveness. I mean, to the Last Supper, to the resurrection, these guys were competing with one another. I mean, again, have you studied the Gospel of John? It seems that John and Peter had some kind of thing going on. You say, what do you mean? Did you know that the Gospel of John is the only record where, where it talks about the two that raced to the tomb? It was John and Peter. It's not the only one that talks about it, but it's the only one that lists the detail that John got there first. And I can think of no theological significance other than John was writing it and said, I just want everybody to know, I beat him. <laughs> but if Peter was writing his Gospel record, he would say, but I was the first one to stick my head in. 
You know, these guys were doing that all the time. And that happens in church. It does. People competing over their kids, competing over this, competing over that. That's a worldly mentality. And so Jesus senses the need to sit them down and go over all of this again. And he gives this classic passage. He says the Gentiles think that this is, man, if you are, are in charge of people, then you're important, but it should not be so among you. The greatest among you is going to be a servant. You know, he, he basically says there's a way that the world says that you need to lead, but there's a way that God says we should lead. You know, one time I had a lady, she, she literally caught me. as She said, Pastor, I want to talk to you. I said, yes, ma'am. What do you want to talk about? She said, this is a direct quote. I want to be in charge of something. I jotted down that day. People who want to be in charge of something should never be in charge of anything. I mean, come on, some of you guys that are in a secular workplace, you ever seen somebody who was a great worker and when they elevated them to a position of management and authority, it just went straight to the head and they were a tyrannical leader and they were a horrible manager because they were in charge. Jesus said, that's not the way it should be among you. He says, rather than leveraging your authority, just be a servant of all. See, effective spiritual leaders are those who demonstrate their heart for people by loving them and by serving them. This isn't my church, so, so I can say some things here that I wouldn't say at home. But there's something that really bothers me sometimes. Uh, there's a question that somebody asks. It's not original with me, but I want you to think about this question. Somebody said this, how can you tell if you have a servant's heart? And the answer that they gave is such a, is, is a convicting answer. The answer they gave is this, by how you respond when you are treated like one. Here's what bothers me. Sometimes I might be fellowshipping and talking to somebody. If I'm talking to Brother Robbie, I, I'm talking to you. And, and at our church, like, look, we slap backs, we joke around, we talk about sports, we talk about all those things. But I've encouraged our people, like, hey, let's make sure we're having spiritual conversations. It shouldn't be strange. It, God said my house should be a house of prayer, so it shouldn't be strange to see people over on the side with their arms around you praying or something like that. And so it's not uncommon as a pastor, somebody say, hey, pastor, I just want to let you know, man, I've been diagnosed with cancer, and I want you to pray for me. And I'll just say, hey, well, let's pray right now, you know. Or, hey, my, my brother-in-law is really struggling in his marriage. and I'm, I mean, I've, I've had people with tears running down for telling me these things. And, 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 and so I'm going to be talking to you about these things. And somebody over here will do this right here. And it annoys me to death. I mean, even if we're just talking about the ball game, I think there's a sense of propriety, right? You don't interrupt people. I taught my kids, don't interrupt. Right? So somebody over here will go, hey, pastor. I mean, from across the room. Hey, pastor. Pastor. Come here. Come here. Come here. This guy just told me he's been diagnosed with cancer. He just told me his, his, his brother's marriage is busting up. Come here. And I'll tell you, something rises up in me. Like, who, who are you talking to? Do you know I'm a pastor? I mean, you seen that plaque on my door? I am not a dog. Here, boy. Okay.
I'm just telling you, it raises up in me. But I get convicted. How do you know when you have a servant's heart? By how you react when you're treated like one. Well, you know, I'm just here to serve the Lord. I'm sure the other pastors in this room had somebody say, Pastor, you need anything. You need anything done around the church. I mean anything. You just call me. Well, you know, there's some restrooms on the second story that aren't getting cleaned. And, you know, I could use your help clean those restrooms. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. But if you need anything. (laughs) I just want to tell you, sometimes it may be unpleasant and dirty sometimes, but serving people is very rewarding. I'll close with a, one final illustration. In March of 1995, the New England Pipe Cleaning Company was working under the streets of Revere, Massachusetts. Their job was to clean a 10-inch sewer line. Now, I've not done that kind of work, but I can imagine it would be unpleasant to clean a 10-inch sewer line. I've not done that work, but I can relate a little bit. I've got three daughters. They're lovely girls. They really are. They're beautiful. And they've got, they all, all of them have big, thick hair. I mean, they, some of them, you know, they highlight it. They curl it. They spritz it. They do what, I don't know, they, they do it. One of them's married now, the home now, but, but, they, when they were growing up, they, they, they had a bedrooms, they had a Jack and Jill bathroom. So that means they had two bedrooms and a ba- bathroom in, in the middle there, and they would share that bathroom. And uh, sometimes what they would do is uh, every, every so often they would come down, and, and uh, I, I like to exercise, and I've got this exercise machine in my house. It's called a Lazy Boy. And so, <laughs> like, I'd be exercising, you know, and... Uh, They'd come in and they would stand there and they'd get kind of sheepish. They'd say, um, um, dad, um, dad, how the bathtub is not uh, draining real good. And I'd say, can't you see I'm exercising here? But it's my job. It's the manly responsibility in my house. Because whenever they bring this to my attention, my wife disappears. I can never find her. And so I stop exercising, and I go to the garage, and I, I, I have this tool. And I grab this tool, and I, I grab a Walmart bag. Can I get an amen for Walmart bags? I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can do with Walmart bags, you know. And so, so I go marching up. And what happens is, like, when this happens, all of my daughters, they could be upstairs, but when I start marching up there with this tool and that bag, they all go downstairs. Like, like they will not be upstairs. So I take that protective piece off of there that's supposed to keep this junk out of there and I take that off and I stick that tool down there and I you know and and I let me tell you it's pretty up here it ain't pretty down there it's nasty and and I mean there's no other you just got to be a man and you just grab it and you go back in there and you grab it you tie that thing up, you come downstairs, and they're going, did you get it? I got it. You dispose of it. It's gross. It's very, 
nasty. Back to my story, clean out a 10-inch sewer line. I can't even imagine what they found in there. The rest of the story is this. Those workers found many of the usual items that clog these kind of pipes. But can I tell you, they also, in that story, they discovered 61 rings. They found old historic vintage coins. I mean, this is Boston area. They literally found pure silverware. How's that stuff get down in a drain like that? Here's my point. The bad news is they had to do a very unpleasant job. The good news is they were allowed to keep anything valuable they found. Can I tell you when you serve other people, you don't have to be a pastor for this to be true. When you serve other people, sometimes you will find yourself down in the muck and the mire of their life. You will find yourself in messes that you didn't make. I often say pastoring is the only profession I know that people get mad at you because you can't fix what they broke. You get down there with them. And sometimes it stinks. And it's dirty. But you know what? I've been down there enough to find so many gems. It's worth it. And Jesus looks at these guys that are thinking only about crowns and positions and power. And he says to them, you really want to be great, do you? Then how willing are you to suffer? It's going to cause you inward anguish. You're going to follow me. For some of you, it's going to cause physical pain. You really want to be great? You better learn how to serve. It's not about being in charge of something. It's about being a minister. Even the Son of Man came to be a minister to everybody. Let me ask some questions and I'm done. Thank you for your good attention. Question number one is this. Do you desire to be great or are you just content being mediocre? I'm not insulting you. I don't know where you are in your spiritual life. I'm just asking the question. You do your own self-examination. Let's say like the psalmist, search me, O God, and try my heart. Okay, so so are you content to be just mediocre or, or is there something inside of you that says, I want to be great? I would love it tonight. Again, I'm not trying to be melodramatic. But I think it would be wonderful if a bunch of teenagers just filled this altar up and said, you know what, I don't want to be a mediocre Christian. I want to be on fire for the Lord in my teen years. It's good for a, for a young man to bear the yoke in his youth. Hey, what about moms and dads? I, I want this meeting to propel me to something more in my spiritual life. Then, then my follow-up questions are these. Do you avoid suffering at all costs or do you accept it? I'm not saying you actively search it out. I'm just saying when it comes your way, you have a measure of grace on your life that says, you know what, if I'm going to follow Jesus, this is going to be my lot in life sometimes. And then my last and final question is this, is who are you actively serving? How do you react when you're treated like a servant? What have you discovered in the process of serving others? May the Lord help us go from good 
I think everybody in this room is a good person. Let's go from good to great. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting me preach a little bit tonight. And I do hope that you would, you would help to us, you would speak to us, that you would move among us during this time of invitation. And I just pray uh, that your, your will would be done in our lives, and that we would learn the lessons that you teach us, and you would help us to grow. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, how many would just simply say, Pastor, the Lord spoke to my heart tonight about something. The Holy Spirit's speaking to me. Would you raise your hand? That's wonderful. How many say, Preacher, that question is stirring within me. I don't want to just stay where I'm at in my spiritual life. I do desire to be great the way the Lord defined greatness. And would you pray for me? How many feel that way tonight? Thank you. Let's all stand together. Our friend is playing on the piano. Why don't you come as some have already come? Let's come and pray. Let's make an altar out of our seat. Let's respond to the truth of God's word tonight.